Let's start with an important question today. The important question being this, um, what motivates God to even pay attention to us? What keeps God pursuing us or engaging us in any kind of relational manner when we ourselves know that we struggle with sin, with a wandering heart, even with guilt? Now, that question haunted a man named Martin Luther 500 years ago in what is now Germany. Luther was what many would today call a very spiritual man, but he was also a struggling man who struggled with his sense of sin, his own wandering heart, and his guilt. And the thing that Luther uh, in his life really longed for was a sense of acceptance from God. Uh, He wanted God to love him, but he just couldn't feel it. So he pursued a life of what Roland Bainton, the historian, calls self-help religion. And here's what he did through the years in order to have his self-help religion. He gave up all his ambitions, vocational ambitions, even his wealth. And in his case, he became an Augustinian monk, even living in a cloister with other monks. It was a very strict order. For years, he studied the Bible. He rigorously practiced um, spiritual disciplines in poverty, chastity. He would go through vigils of prayer for long periods of time and even days of fasting. Some days he would walk away from these experiences and he would actually say to himself, I have done nothing wrong today. Yet, despite even trying to assure himself, he didn't feel very holy or very loved. In fact, he had a nagging ache that he just couldn't do enough. So what did he decide to do then? Well, then he decided to have a big spiritual experience. He went on a personal retreat to the holy city of the Holy Roman Empire. That's right, Rome itself. And in Rome, he was promised that he would experience all kinds of things, uh, and, and he would experience even holy things. Uh, he would experience um, what were called relics, things that were claimed to be belonging to or related to the apostles themselves, and there he could venerate, that is, even worship God in the presence of those things. He was promised that if he did these things, he would spend, and those he loved, would spend less time in purgatory when they died. Never one to back down from a humiliating challenge, (laughs) Luther then decided he would do one of the hardest things, climb the stairs of Pilate in Rome on his hands and knees, kissing every single step to the very top. And yet, when he got to the top, he asked this simple question, who knows if this will work? In short, Luther lived where we live, with a lot of doubt, 
a lot of doubt about whether God cares, whether God is engaged, whether God really wants to be a part of our lives, or even is interested in us. Most of the time, he felt like God was an angry judge looking down on him. And in light of this, we come back to our original question, what keeps God engaged with us, if in fact that is true? Why would God continue to want to be in relationship, given the things we've done, the things we've said, the things we're sorry about, the things we don't want to admit because we're afraid if we just say it, God will get even more angry at us. What keeps him engaged? Is it something about us that has to keep him engaged? Or is it something about him? Well, our answer today comes on this Reformation Sunday Back in the book of Romans, this book that talks so much about the big themes of the gospel that free us and direct us to a life where we can encounter Christ in a very real way. You might remember in our studies of Romans over the last few years, really, in Romans 1 through 3, we find out that human sin is worse than we thought. And it's worse for both the religious types like us here and even the irreligious types who don't even bother to engage God. And it's so bad, in fact, that with our sin, we're in a hole that we can't get out of on our own. In Romans 3 through 5, Paul tells us how God gets us out of the hole of sin and that he provides the only way out in Christ, dying on a cross once and for all uh, to pay our penalty for sin. In those chapters, Paul says the way to receive, the instrument to receive the gift that Christ offers in forgiveness of the sins and the guilt and the shame we carry is faith, a resting on Christ alone. Then in Romans 6 through 8, Paul tells us that The death of Christ isn't without consequence in our lives every day in how we live. We are, as he says, dead to sin and alive to God. And as children of God, we actually live out in sanctification, a new life before the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 8, at the very end of it, he gives this assuring, encouraging word that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, not even you. And it's words like this that resonate so greatly in our hearts, we think, could it actually be true? (laughs) But then comes chapters 9 through 11. A shocking reality where Paul breaks in after all these great truths and then brings up the one troubling part of Scripture that all of us wonder about, the Jews. What about them? For an entire part of the Old Testament, God had reached out to the Jews, saved them in miraculous ways in the Exodus, delivering them from their enemies time and again and even delivering them from themselves. And here... Paul recognizes in chapters 9 through 11, he admits that despite all that God did through the years for the Jews, they did not trust in his Christ on the whole. On the whole, they didn't follow Jesus when he came into their midst. 
And in chapters 9 and 10, he talks at length about how real being a real Israelite is ultimately not about your ethnicity, but your spirituality. Who you trust in, the Christ you look to. He talks about how even the Israelites existed in history itself as believers in the coming Christ during the Old Testament. And yet there were many who didn't believe as well. In a way, Romans 9 and 10 reminds us that there is a widespread and really a large-scale rejection of Christ even by God's so-called people. And so Paul asked this huge question at the beginning of chapter 11, has God rejected his people then? Has God rejected his people? Now, so many had trashed Christ that an observer would think, you know, God had said he would save them throughout the Old Testament. Maybe God can't come through on what he promises. Maybe God doesn't have an ability to actually save a people from their sin. Looking at the Jews and their story, it's easy to wonder. Well, Paul's answer to that question, has God rejected or is he even able to save, shows up in several parts in chapter 11. Now, David Uran talked about this months ago, but I'll quickly review what his answer to that is. He reminds us again that all of Israel is not Israel. Just because you're ethnically born into uh, Israel as an ethnic group doesn't mean you're automatically saved. In fact, Paul uh, points out further in our text, and yet another example in chapter 11, the apostles were an example of Jews who did believe. And then there's always Paul himself, who was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, as he talks about in Philippians 3, who lived perfectly by the law according to the Pharisaical interpretation of it. And yet God radically altered his life so that he would become a believer in Christ. And then Paul explains in chapter 11 even further the story of Elijah. You might remember, Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal back in 1 Kings, and he crushes them. It's a contest of gods, and it's not even close. And yet, Elijah leaves that amazing victory, and he shows up later on by himself, hiding from Jezebel, who wants to kill him, because she loved Baal. And he thinks to himself in kind of a little pity party, are there any believers left? I think I'm the only one, and they're trying to kill me. And then Paul tells us in chapter 11 an amazing thing, a promise that God gave uh, to Elijah at that point. And look at verse uh, 4. He said, God replies to Elijah and says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Here you see Paul's key point for this text is that God indeed does not give up on people despite their wandering hearts, despite their sin, despite the brokenness that we all bring to the table, and that he has enough ability to save whom he wants. And who does he save? 
Well, look at verse 5. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant. A remnant. Ah, this brings us to an important point. Uh, in Paul's time, as well as even the Old Testament, that always there is a remnant of believers. Who are the remnant? Well, the remnant in the Scriptures is that group of true and faithful followers uh, in an ethnic group as a whole, even a religious group like a church like ours, who stay faithful to God and follow uh, his coming Christ or his Christ who has come in our case. It's like this slide right here. You, you've got a square. And imagine the square is uh, all the people in an ethnic group like the Jews or even uh, other groups. Uh, you can name ethnic groups around the world. And within them is a smaller group, a subset, the remnant who are true believers. This is a picture of what the church can actually look like as well. And we might call in the theological circles, for those who love theology, that remnant is also called the invisible church. That's what they are. Now, here's the question for us. I'm giving you a little theology lesson for biblical theology across Scripture. What in the world has this got to do with us today? Well, there are three simple applications I want you to consider even now from this idea of the remnant. And the first is this. Ed Stetzer, a commentator on um, church growth and cultural movements, rightly points out what we all know right now as the church. Our culture is going through a huge shift right now. And the results is that two kinds of Christians are being revealed. Cultural Christians and convictional Christians. Cultural Christianity shows up often in the liberal church. Uh, and in a generation or two, you will probably see the end of cultural Christianity in our nation. Convictional Christianity, however, are those who cling to God's word and pursue Christ in a living, saving relationship. And to say that cultural Christianity, even in places like the Bible Belt, is going to pass away sooner rather than later is not a bad thing. Just as Ed Stetzer say in the past, good riddance to it. And I'll tell you why. Because Christianity has actually thrived throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, even before Christ's coming. The remnant thrived under duress. Real Christianity, Christianity rises up in the midst of resistance. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves today is where do you land? Are you a cultural Christian? who has all the right words, but not necessarily the right heart with God, who has the form of religion but lacks the power thereof, or are you the convictional Christian who wants to be among the remnant that follows God to the end no matter what? You tell me before the Lord where you land. Second application today. After this past missions uh, weekend, uh, I have to tell you, this kind of remnant theology is very encouraging because our job as Christians is to go out and share the gospel with people, to talk to people about Jesus in formal and informal ways with our life and with our words. And the wonder of that is simple. 
When we do that, God will draw his people out of people groups, of our social environments. God will draw his own out of those cases to build his remnant. So if you go to some social group who you think, oh, there's no way Christ can be reach anybody there, don't bet on it. There might be the remnant there. Don't bet that God can't reach people in other nations. That's why with Faith Promise, we give. That's why we go with a mission trips. That's why we partner with uh, mission agencies. It's because we want to see people, the remnant being called out in the midst of other nations and other people groups. Even when you think they aren't there, they are there. That's the encouraging word of mission regarding remnant theology. But there's a third application that plays for many of us in this room. For those of us who have kids or family who maybe grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church and who are not following Christ or have jumped ship from the church, have maybe even become a part of the so-called nuns, no affiliation in the church or with regards to a church or religion, there is hope. There is hope that God isn't done with them yet. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, he had the remnant in mind, saving those who even wandered away from him. God isn't done with them, and our job is simply to love our family well, with integrity, with patience, and even with grace. That brings us to the greater question then. Why? Why isn't God done with the hard-hearted people like the Jews and sometimes us who don't want to be a part of the remnant sometimes? Well, the key is the descriptive phrase in our text today in verse 5 that says they were chosen by grace. Let's pick that apart. The remnant is chosen. Now, there is a word that stirs up a little controversy. Chosen. That's the language of election that's based in the predestined plan of God for all that happens in human history and even our personal lives. The whole of Scripture plainly teaches that God chooses sinners to redeem them and to include them in his family. That might be an uncomfortable truth for you, but it is a truth nonetheless in Scripture. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as he chose us in him from the foundation of the world. Before time began, Paul says that God had a plan. And we were a part of that plan. And he is sticking to the plan. That is God himself as the sovereign Lord. Now let's think about the beauty of this truth for a second, how that applies. If God in fact has chosen us, and even chosen us to be saved before the world began. You know what that means? That means that God wants you. He's interested in you and wants you to be a part of his kingdom. 
and his family. Some here may think, yeah, but this whole idea of choosing is really troubling. I mean, don't I get to choose? Don't I get to be a part of choosing God? Isn't that what relationship is about? And we would say, absolutely, yes, you do. You get to choose in faith. Faith is an active choice. But the question is, who chooses first? The answer is, God chooses first. And that informs our choice, not the other way around. Some skeptics here would say, you know what, I don't like this language of choice. It seems exclusive. It doesn't seem fair. Why would God choose some versus others? That seems totally out of line with loving people. Well, actually, here's what I'd tell you. (laughs) It actually is very much in line with loving people. Because you have to ask the question, what exactly is fair according to God? Fairness, according to God, is this, that every one of us in this room, including, and I'll say especially me, goes to hell because we have sinned against God and offended him with our lives in some very real ways in our lives. That's what's fair, according to God. That's what justice is, according to God. However, out of something from within God, he has chosen some. To be objects of mercy, as we read in Romans 9. He has chosen to redeem us from hell, not because of anything we bring to the table, but something from within Him. I would pause if I were you before we call God unfair and unjust, because it was Jesus Himself who said in Matthew 22 many are called, but few are chosen. It was Jesus himself who said, I chose you. You didn't choose me in John 15. So that brings us to the next big truth and question. If in fact the remnant are chosen, what is it that motivates that chosenness, that election? Well, Paul tells us it's by grace. The election of God and the grace of God go together. Grace is a form of mercy that actually gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Remember, our definition of, uh, of what we deserve is justice. The de- not getting what you deserve is mercy. But a gift that is the opposite of what you deserve, that's grace. Grace. This gets the, at the heart of Christianity Unlike all other religions, if you were to put all other religions up before each other and compare them, the one thing that would stand out, according to Lewis and so many others, is when you compare them all, only one religion has grace. Where the God who is offended actually reaches out to his enemies instead of striking them down. He is patient with them. And this God in three persons reaches out with love as God the Father, with an active work on the cross as God the Son, for the good of the person, the sinner, the enemy. And finally, with the power of the Holy Spirit changing a heart. 
God in three persons actively working for us. You see, all the world's religions come up with the, the following um, equation. Salvation. Hello, equation? No equation? Thank you. Works religion equation goes like this. Salvation equals grace plus works. Like, yeah, the God will maybe be a little kind to you, but you bring something to the table. That's what salvation is. But Christianity says something very different. Grace through faith in Christ equals salvation, and then you work. In other words, our salvation is not a function of what we do. It's a function of Christ's work for us at the cross. This is radical stuff. And it is so radical that it will transform the way you understand God. It will transform the way you live your life, even as a Christian today in many cases. And what you need to know is that when it comes to grace and works, that comparison that's often used throughout church history, it's often thought that the Jews got in by works. That they as a people in the Old Testament actually had to keep up works in order to be in with God. And I'd ask you, is that what the Bible teaches? Actually, it doesn't. They were in by grace. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Turn in your Bibles or your iPads or phones to Deuteronomy 7, an important text. Deuteronomy 7 says this about the Jews, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God that is set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. Ah, chosen people. There's that language again. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But check this out. It, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Did you hear that? It's because he loves you. It's not anything you bring to the table, O Israel. That's grace. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Is that no matter what we do before we're Christians or don't do before we're Christians. Or even do or don't do as Christians. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Guy Waters says it like this. There is nothing the sinner does that commends him to the grace of God, nor does the sinner cooperate with God to work for salvation. Salvation from beginning to end is a sovereign gift of God. This is what Luther rediscovered with the rest of the reformers. So much of Catholic Christianity in uh, the Reformation or pre-Reformation times, had been added with an and. and. It goes like this. You, oh yeah, you need to be saved by grace. And you've got to do this. Oh, you need to be saved by faith in Christ. And you need to be baptized. You need to do this. You need to speak in tongues. We could go on and on with all kinds of things. 
What the Reformation did is it took away the and. And said, no, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul says twice, by grace you have been saved. Twice. As if he's driving home the alone emphasis. What's that got to do with how we live today? So many of us labor hard for God. We are maybe pious and religious, and we're working really hard at reading our Bible, at praying. Good things, keep doing it. But let me tell you, if you're doing it so God will smile on you and finally accept you when that day comes when you meet Him face to face, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Don't you understand God loves you and he saved you by grace long before you ever wanted him. He made the first move towards you and he's still moving towards you even when you're wandering away. Grace is what motivates him. Grace is his love, his patience, his mercy, his kindness. It's his power coming all together in his very being to redeem you and me. Even as we run from him in our hearts and hide in the things of this world, just like Israel did, just like the disciples did. God is faithful to pursue us by his grace. And that is why in verse 6 of our text today, Paul drives at this grace alone point. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. If you're saved by grace plus works of any kind, then you're just eradicating the grace part and it becomes all works. How did I perform for God today? That's the question that haunts you when you live by works. Now, I will grant that there is a place for pleasing God. There is a place for pursuing Him actively and actually in our sanctification. But if you don't get this grace first thing down, <laughs> you will be caught in legalism, moralism. You will be on a roller coaster with God because you are all about your performance for God. Grace hits the, the home run if it's not about your performance for God. It's all about what God has performed for you. All the religions of the world say, do. Christianity says, done. In Christ. So, the question here today for all of us is this. What has this got to do with how we live in a life that that pursues Jesus by grace alone, enjoying the pleasure of God first, and then responding out of that in our lives. Well, let me give you three paradigms for how you can live relative to gr grace alone. And, and a couple of them are false paradigms, so pay attention. In Paul's days, in Paul's day, the Jews were keen to say, I have got grace by virtue of being born into Israel. I'm an ethnic Israelite, so I'm in with God. And Paul in Romans and other places, even throughout the Old Testament, says, No way, Jose. Doesn't matter where you were born and what family you're born, even if it's a believing family, you're saved by grace through faith. Why does that matter for us today? If you're a kid here today and were born in a Christian home, amen. 
That's a gift. But do not assume that you're automatically a Christian by virtue of you being born into a Christian home. You need to personally receive Christ for your own salvation from your own sin. Him dying on the cross for you. Don't wait. Seek to know Him by grace through faith yourself. Second, other Jews in Paul's day thought, okay, we're in by grace. Admittedly, we don't deserve it as a people. However, we need to stay in by getting busy for Jesus or for God. And so the Jews in that day would say, how do I work so I keep my salvation and can ensure it comes through? And there it is again, isn't it? Just the little works working their way in. That's what the Pharisees of Jesus' time actually articulated. We need to work really hard. Well, here's what you need to know. Works are the evidence, the fruit of true salvation. They are not the grounds or reason we are saved. And why is that? Because you can never do enough on your own. You need to learn to rest in the gospel every day. It's become trite even in Reformed and Evangelical circles, but I'll say it again. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. I am loved not because of anything I've done or not done today. I'm loved because of something about God and something in Him. That's what makes Him glorious and different than the other gods who say, what have you done for me lately? Now our God says, what have I done for you lately? Third, Many Jews had just given up. They had worked so hard to try and obey the law, and it just got so hard, like, I'm done with this religion stuff. It's, it, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. I'm done. But their consciences bothered them. They were never good enough. Spiritual laziness took its toll, and they felt empty in their soul. And the wonder of Christ is that he calls us back to him again and again. He not only calls us back to him, he pursues us. And that's why, like the prodigal, we have to draw near to God so he will draw near to us. If you've been wandering your heart from God for a long time, I understand that. You can do that as a religious person. I've had my moments. But you can come back to God by simply crying out just like the prodigal, just like uh, the uh, publican or the tax collector in, the, in Luke 18, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't deserve this, but I need Christ today. Today, Christ offers grace to us, a grace that saves us through and through from beginning to end. From eternity in his choice all the way to glory when we end up in heaven. It's all of grace, as Spurgeon wrote once. And he calls us today to keep pursuing that grace. To keep needing God more. That's what will happen, you know, as you follow Jesus. It's not that your life will become more successful, more bright and shiny. It's actually that you'll see more of your need. More of your brokenness. And you'll actually need him more and humble yourself before him more. If you taste grace, that love of God, that work of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, if you taste the Holy Spirit bringing that reminder and even that power to live a different life, 
You'll never be the same. It will change your life in profound ways. It'll change it like eight-year-old Atticus Dupree in Washington State, or rather Portland, uh, Oregon State. Atticus Dupree got to do his big dream last May of 2013. Atticus was diagnosed with cancer, and he was granted a wish by the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And what was his wish? He wanted his little soccer team of eight-year-olds called the Green Machine to take on a major league soccer team called the Portland Timbers. So Atticus and his team took the field against eight of the Portland Timber players, and they played with each other for a while. At one point, the score was tied, nine to nine. And Atticus made the winning goal so that it was ten to nine over his professional soccer heroes. The Timbers gave him the title, the man of the match. And in a common gesture of sportsmanship in soccer, the all-star Will Johnson gave his jersey to Atticus. And Atticus gave his jersey to Johnson. Folks, Atticus and his friends had no right to be out on a soccer field with these amazing soccer players. They were only eight-year-olds. Dupree didn't deserve to be there with those players, but those players, by grace, said, we want to be a part of this kid's life and give him a gift. Don't you think God can be just as generous with you? Even more so. If you believe that, call on Jesus again today because you know what? Grace is still amazing. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you needing amazing grace. It does not come naturally to us to pursue that. We try and work our own spiritual life out without you. And yet you call us to yourself today to be a part of the remnant, to pursue you only because you first pursued us. And so, Lord, pray today for our church that we would rediscover grace in its depths and breadth. That we would rediscover discipleship and outreach motivated by your grace, not merely the challenge of the law. We want to be changed from the inside out. Move us there, Lord, even as we come to your table now. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand if you're able as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. 
Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Christian among many is to wonder why is God engaging you? Why is he even pursuing you in Christ? And the answer is you're chosen by grace. Chosen not because of you, but because of something within God. And that plays out in all of life. And before we go to the supper today, we get to actually state what we believe about how that plays out in life from the Westminster Shorter Catechism as it articulates our sense of grace for each of us. So I ask you, Christian, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby for He has own glory, He hath foreordained whatever comes to pass. I ask you, Christian, about grace. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And I ask you about grace and adoption. What is adoption? 
act of God's free grace, whereby we are received in the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And what has grace got to do with the way you live today in sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. You may be seated. Today we come to the supper, not as a together people,